What a sign it is creaking. We see your lost soul with our wondering eye. There's only one light on, and the darkness is creeping. There's only one light, and the chill in the air. We promise you stories for one night only. Come closer toward us, lend us your ear if you dare. For most of us, Christmas is the happiest time of the year. We give gifts to good friends, eat decadent food with family, and spread cheer to strangers. Good children are rewarded with gifts and treats. Naughty children are encouraged to behave better in the last few weeks of the year to erase 11 months of transgressions. It's a time for kindness, understanding, and love. Many of us love it. Many of us keep up our decorations too long. Meg personally fights every year to convince people that Michael Bublé is for life, not just for Christmas. I'm mostly found at festive markets surrounded by Germanic wooden huts and clutching a warm, boozy drink. Children spend the last few days at school cutting out snowflakes and colouring in pictures of elves. In England, we leave out a mince pie on Christmas Eve. In Ireland, Santa is treated to some Guinness. In Denmark, it's actually the Nissa, or elves, who are treated to a bowl of rice pudding. The Christmas season is truly a magical one. But like all holidays, there are several scary and dangerous traditions too. No wonder parents like to stick to the safer traditions. Reading the night before Christmas in front of an open fire sounds much nicer than your naughty children being taken away by witches or eaten by a giant cat. Not to mention the demonic spies that parents pose each night during December. Let's begin with the all-seeing, all-knowing man in red. He's somehow aware of your sleeping schedule, keeping watch on those insomniac nights. He can break into any house, even those without his preferred chimney entrance. If you spend the holiday at your grandmother's, he'll visit you there instead. Like a glorified stalker, Father Christmas is beloved among children across the world. He is based on the philanthropic Saint Nicholas, a third century saint from Patara, beloved for his piety and community spirit. Once he died and his acts of charity passed into legend, his omnipresence slowly became more and more sinister. Santa's watchful eye is often used to manipulate children into behaving. 
don't even get us started on the creepy modern tradition of the toy, which apparently moves independently to spy on children and report back to the big man. The elf on the shelf could give Chucky a run for his money. Santa's problematic obsession with good behaviour is nothing though, compared to some of the less popular Christmas figures. The metallic clang of chains on tarmac rings out through the snow-dusted streets. It's the 5th of December, the eve of St Nicholas. The city is sleeping as a creature moves among the houses, its cloven hooves leaving strange prints on the ground. Flakes of snow melt into the matted brown hair that covers its body. If you peeked out your window now, you would see the demonic half-goat known as Krampus, searching the streets for naughty children to kidnap. I recommend you don't do this, in case it spies you with its horizontal pupils. You see, while Father Christmas identifies the naughty children, he doesn't actually want to deal with them. The morning after Krampusnacht, children are supposed to look outside their front door and find presents if they were good, or a birch twig if they had been bad. For those that Santa deemed beyond help, he passed along the task to his demonic partner, happy to avoid tarnishing his good image. Just like the big man himself, legend states that the Krampus begins watching you from the moment you are born. In some cases, babies have been stolen away by the demon, presumably to stop them from committing heinous deeds later in life. In Austria, the Rüten, or bundles of birch sticks which the Krampus uses to whip children, are handed to parents by the beast himself on Christmas Eve, once children have gone to bed. Families display them year-round as an incentive to behave. Moving down the street, the beast is swinging its bundle from side to side. Its long goat legs stride forward at an alarming pace as it twists its head this way and that, looking into windows and breathing deeply through its nostrils for the scent of misbehaviour. You draw the curtain shut as it turns down your street. The last thing you saw was the wicker basket strapped to its back. In it sits your friend Tom, his face frozen in fear, too scared to make any noise in case the beast looks back and flicks its long forked tongue again. The trail of spit on Tom's cheek still hasn't dried. They were too far away for you to notice, but Tom has wet himself. It happened not long after he was pulled from his bed Claws closed around his ankles as he desperately tried to cling to the iron rods of his bed frame. His legs are red with welts and scratches. But this won't matter to the Krampus. The more tender the meat, the better. You want to call out to your parents, save Tom from this monster. But something in you knows that if they looked out of their own window, they would not see the beast. Adults never seem to see what is right in front of them. 
Instead, you sit on your bed on the other side of the room, breathing shallowly and trying not to panic. You hear the jangle of chains and the tinkle of bells as it steps ever closer. You wonder if your baby sister thinks it's the sound of reindeer. Krampus is coming, and it's not like you haven't been warned. Every bad report card, every fight with your siblings, that time your mother caught you stealing coins from her purse. It occurs to you then that the basket you saw was very small. You are tall for your age, and your legs tend to cramp up on the long car journeys to grandmother's house. As your pulse quickens, you peek out of the small gap in the curtains. The street is quiet, and all you can see are the cloven hoofprints in the snow. The Krampus is gone. But then you notice something. The prints don't carry on down the street. They simply stop, and they're pointing right towards your house. If you found yourself in a field in 5th century Alsace, chances are you may have seen a scarecrow. Stepping closer though, you would soon realise that there was something not quite right about this one. Firstly, it wasn't tied to a large stick that had been pushed into the dirt. Secondly, it just turned its head towards you and grinned. Scarecrows can't move on their own, so perhaps it's just a trick of the light, you think. It is dark after all, and your parents told you to come home before sunset. But you stayed too long with your friend, and making a shortcut through the field will get you home quickly. You carry on, moving away from the scarecrow. You know you're just being silly, but something about it makes you feel uncomfortable. Walking quickly, you glance over your shoulder at the man made of straw. Your stomach drops when you see it has vanished. Running now, you slip and trip in the mud, your breath catching as you try to get through the field as quickly as possible. Sheep watch you curiously, bleating intermittently. As you reach the gate, you slow a little, looking over your shoulder again, sure that the stupid thing will be right where it was before. Your mother always said you had an overactive imagination. It's nowhere to be seen. And as you turn to face the gate once more, you scream. The thing made of straw is in front of you, but he is no scarecrow. A bedraggled, wild-eyed man stares down at you. It feels as though you've been punched in the stomach, but when you look down, a dark crimson stain is spreading out around the sharpened stick, protruding from your chest. As you fall unconscious, you hear him cackle. You'll be delicious. 
In the 15th century, there lived a rich and cruel man named Hans Trapp. It is said that he gave himself over to debauchery from an early age, determined to amass great wealth and share it with no man. To obtain more power, he communed with Satan, using black magic and occult rituals to summon demons. His obsession with the darker side of life was too much for the pious town, and after being excommunicated by the Catholic Church, the good people of Alsace exiled him to the Bavarian mountains. Living in a damp shack made of sticks, Hans Trapp is said to have slowly lost his mind, becoming hungrier and hungrier with each passing day. As the autumn turned to winter, he grew angrier, from his shack, he could see the local shepherds working the fields. The anger and resentment to the townspeople, coupled with his rumbling belly, led to an extreme and dangerous revenge plan. On the 24th of December, Hans Trapp left his home in the mountains and returned to the city. Stuffing straw and hay into his dirty, ragged clothes, he spent his time in fields behind the forest, pretending to be a scarecrow and lying in wait for a victim. As Hans watched a young shepherd boy going about his chores, he began to drool, imagining biting into the boy's tender flesh. He attacked the boy, stabbing him, then dragging him back to the shack where he cut the boy into pieces and roasted them over an open fire. Before he could take the first bite, God himself struck Hans with lightning, killing him instantly. It is said that death, however, still wasn't enough to cure his insatiable appetite. On Christmas Eve in Alsace, Hans' trap can still be found roaming the fields, looking for children good enough to eat. The Yuletide is ending. Fires are going out and the people of southern Germany are beginning to prepare for the new year. By the 6th of January, or Epiphany, all obedient housewives know that their spinning should be finished. When the Christmas season ended, it was time to begin the year's weaving, and if you did not have enough thread spun by twelve night, Legend had it that Frau Perchter would appear at your door for revenge. Frau Perchter is a fearsome witch, said to have two faces, one nice and one evil. She has a beaked nose made of iron and a cloak made of rags. Hidden under her skirt, she carries a razor-sharp knife. She is to be feared above all as a visit from Frau Perchter will never end well. Old Gerda knows there are ways to keep the witch from the door. Spinning all the flax was one. Keeping the house spotless was another. And finally, the surefire way to avoid the witch's wrath was to leave out a thick porridge called Perchdemilch. 
It had been a hard winter for old Gerda. Her fingers were stiff and eyes bloodshot, both ruined from years of weaving in half-light. As was tradition, old Gerda made the porridge each year, serving it to her husband and seven children. The young ones took it in turns to spoon out a portion and leave it on the front step. After eating, with bellies still half empty, old Gerda swept the house, cleaning plates in freezing water and tidying as best she could. As the night wore on, there was still so much spinning to do, far too much to complete in one night. With a sigh, she resigned herself that there was no more time and she may as well turn in for the night. She climbed into bed beside her snoring husband, pushing the niggling feeling of fear to the back of her mind as she drifted into sleep. On the last three Thursdays, thunder had shook the mountains. Knocking nights, or birchstall nights, falling on Thursdays during December, were thought to be the time when Frau Perchter led the wild hunt, flying through the sky with her army of lost souls. Many of these demonic servants looked remarkably similar to the Krampus. Alongside them were the souls of unbaptized babies. Some say that if the hunt passes over your house while you're sleeping, your spirit could be pulled away to join the procession. As old Gerda tossed and turned, a stranger silently entered the house. The intruder made their way through the rooms, wiping a withered, claw-like finger across the table. Finding no dust, she frowned. Creeping towards the loom, she spied the flax below the spinning wheel. In a fit of anger, she stamped on the fibres, using a flame from the open fire to set them alight. The flame quickly extinguished, and Frau Perchter chuckled. Spinning left unfinished, and no porridge to be seen. Now she could exact her revenge. Unbeknownst to old Gerda, her eldest son, who was chosen to put out a bowl, had dutifully spooned the porridge, then carried it to the front step, where he proceeded to eat the contents. Knowing his family would soon be asleep and had no need to open the front door again, and listening to the rumble of his belly, he had decided that this old tradition was foolish, and he needed this food far more than any mythical creature did. The wooden floorboards creaked as the crone made her way to the bedroom, moving silently between the children lying on sacks near the stove. The snoring of the husband echoed through the house and the droning made her angrier and angrier as she approached the bed. At the sight of old Gerda, the witch stopped. She watched the rise and fall of the woman's belly, plump and stretched from year after year of pregnancy. Reaching underneath her long skirt, Frau Perchter pulled out her long knife 
and plunged it into old Gerda's stomach. The cut was deep and jagged. Blood bubbled and oozed from the gaping hole. Cackling wildly, Frau Perchta pulled out the intestines, twirling them around so specks of blood flew onto the walls beside the bed, while old Gerda watched in horror, unable to make a sound. The pancreas was next, then the kidneys and liver. The witch pulled a handful of straw from the mattress and shoved it into the gaping hole, adding rocks she pulled from pockets in her cloak. Straw, then rocks, straw, then rocks. As old Gerda's blood pooled on the floor, Frau Perchta took her leave, tossing a silver coin into each child's shoes, except for the eldest boy, who she sneered at as she passed. As she took to the skies with her wild hunt once more, old Gerda's husband fidgeted in bed, still deep in sleep and unaware of the carnage he would soon wake to find. Welcome, Wanderers. Hello, we are here again. Yay. Are you thoroughly creeped out? Because I was right in it. I hope we get like a pantomime response from that. Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> oh, yes, you are. <laughs> okay, we, we went a bit Winston, uh, oh, not Winston, we went a bit Churchill there. Yeah, Winston Churchill. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's not Winston Churchill, it's just Churchill. <laughs> oh, the dog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> If you don't get that, you're probably not British, and we're sorry, but we're not going to explain. Um. Also, uh, if you are British, you'll understand what you say next when someone says auto glass repair. <sighs> I think you have to be from Gloucester to get that. Are they Gloucester? I don't know. They just, I think they're English, like southwest. Well, if you're from the uh, southwest of England, then I hope you get that joke because it's really niche. Hit us up, <laughs> Gloucester folks. It's just, it's just my mum. <laughs> <No one else. laughs> Amazing. Funny. Amazing. Cool. So yeah, so we hit you with some uh, some creepy tales of Christmas. Obviously, we sent you the nice ones last week. Mm-hmm. Some nice fun Christmas traditions, mm-hmm. and I sort of I snuck Mary Lewin in because she's she's a creepy soul, and then mm-hmm. I was like, ah, it's not enough horror for me. It's basically just a Welsh rap battle, and I really enjoy that. It's great. I love mm-hmm. it. Who doesn't want a horse skull at their door shouting insults in Welsh and then they're trying to rap? I think pretty much everyone, but you know. Yeah. I, I have a really boring <laughs> life, so that would be like the highlight of my year. <laughs> I'm really bad at it, I just let her in and be like, come in and get snacks, Mary. Let's hang out. I love, I know we should have talked about this last week, but I just, I love the idea that she was kicked out of the stable when Jesus was born so harsh. It really is, like... You're like, sorry, the turn of God is having to be born. Can you get the fuck out? Talk about speciesism, right? Like... Yeah. <laughs> harsh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, so, um... So I have a very exciting thing that I've been listening to, 
So on, uh, if you have Audible, uh, you will know that as well as obviously you pay your credit and you get your free book every month. Well, it's not free, you pay for it. But uh, you get a reduced audiobook. And it also, side note, if you have Audible and you're not, if you're buying audiobooks that have like three hours, you're doing it wrong. If you have Audible, you should buy audiobooks that have like 20 hours plus. Because mm-hmm. they'd be like 60 quid to buy normally and they're 7.99. This is not an ad for Audible. Amazon is the devil. <laughs> However... The good thing about Audible is that they have free podcasts, which are created by writers, by performers, by musicians, like loads of different things, and they have amazing um, sound quality. So one I really recommend is Good Omens. Uh, if you don't know Good Omens, sort yourself out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman is also incredible. So it's a BBC Radio 4 adaptation, and the sound design is unreal. Like, the book's amazing anyway. But it's got like James McAvoy, Natalie Dormer, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, loads of different people in it. Really, really good. Long story short, the thing I'm trying to say is I downloaded and started listening to an incredible podcast called High Strangeness. Um, It is absolutely amazing. It's by an author called Will McLean, who um, you'll really like this, Jasper, and I didn't tell you in our little bit before because I wanted your reaction live. Uh, As well as writing a horror novel that came out in October, which I will tell you all about in a moment, Mm -hmm. he also has written several scripts for Shaun the Sheep. What? No. (gasps) Oh my god. (laughs) I knew you'd enjoy that. Oh my god. For anyone who doesn't know. I I don't know, but I'm really hoping that he worked on uh, the most recent Shaun the Sheep film about aliens. That's amazing. (laughs) We saw it in the cinema. It was phenomenal. What's What's it called? I... I honestly can't remember. It's been... That was a couple years ago now. Jesus. Yeah, didn't we go to see an audio described one accidentally? Yeah. Yeah, we did. (laughs) Which is ironic that there's subtitles for Shaun the Sheep, a film in which no one speaks. There was a lot of subtitles that were just like, bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mumbling. Like... Sean the yeah, Sheep so, is my happy place. I mean, obviously, that's high praise indeed that he worked on that, but uh-huh. he's a fantastic author anyway. Uh, and I'm just going to read the um, like blurb written for it because I feel like I'm not going to do it justice. So, here we go. In this gripping sci-fi comedy drama adventure, a quick-witted young blogger turned investigator, Cassie Chambers, travels to the sleepy English countryside only to discover a paranormal threat beyond humanity's worst nightmare. Ooh. It's amazing. It's um so you've got Cassie who has a paranormal blog and it's her and her best friend Amanda. Uh, and they keep missing out on scoops because they have to have their normal life and Cassie has to work in a coffee shop and she fucking hates it, as anyone who's ever worked in a coffee shop knows. Um and she gets this tip off that uh, something has happened down in Devon. And also can I say for the voice actors, perfect Devon accent. It was great. I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Uh, it's very hot fuzz. It's like hot fuzz and good omens vibes. It's amazing. The sound design is incredible. The writing's amazing. And obviously, you've got this like mad. I don't want to give any spoilers. I'm only a little bit of the way through, so I'm not going to tell much about the story. But something happens, and it's a bit kind of. Because it's a sci fi book, it's a little bit unbelievable, but you go along with it. But then you've got these really, really grounded characters who just, from the get-go, you understand them, you know where they're coming from. They're really interesting. So you've got Cassie, and then you've got a secret agent called Glenn, who is obviously the guy that the government sends out to uh, 
detain the aliens. Uh, and their uh, relationship's hilarious. Like, you're going to love it, Jasper. Anyone who likes the, like, tit-for-tat kind of back-and-forth relationship. Banter. They're amazing. Yes. Yeah. I hate the word banter because of white English boys. But Bans. yes, banter. <laughs> banter. The <laughs> um, but yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Will McLean's a genius. Um, McLean, McLean, sorry, I'm bad at names. Uh, but yeah, it's amazing. Go and listen to it. It's only available on Audible. Um, but if you want to skip the system, pay for the free month's trial, get the free audio, um, get the free podcast, and then get rid of Amazon. We'll do the world a better place. But yeah, high mm. strangeness. Um, we'll link it on the website where we have all of our recommends. And then he's also got a book that came out in October, the 29th of October, so very nearly Halloween. And it's called The Apparition Phase. Um, and I was chatting to him earlier on when I asked if I could talk about his uh, podcast. And he said it's a lot more horrible and scary. <laughs> I think he was worried that I wouldn't be prepared for it. And I was like, my perfect book. That is fine. Uh-huh. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I don't really know what it's about. From the blurb online, it sounds amazing. Mm. Um, ghostly apparitions, haunting and supernatural. Ooh. Uh, in a Suffolk manner, so that sounds great. Um, and the Guardian say it's hallucin... Oh, I can't say that word. <laughs> Hallucinatory? Hallucinatory. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll I'm do it... I'm doing this justice. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll do it as one of our book recs. Um, which, yes. if you've been um, following us on Instagram, you will have seen that... Um, there's now a little um, tag in the stories where we've got, uh, you know, sort of our sort of creepy reading list uh, in terms of what we're currently reading. So I put up a picture of murder maps, which is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a hundred years um, of crime scenes from some of the um, biggest cities in the world from 1811 to 1911. I'm pretty sure I talked about it a couple of podcasts ago so if you want to know more hop on over there um, or head on over to the Instagram to um, have a look at the cover and see who it's by. Uh, also on there is um, a book called Severed which is about um, severed heads. If that wasn't obvious, I'm still reading that one at the moment. I've yet to finish it, so I'm gonna reserve my final thoughts until I've actually gotten all the way through it. It's certainly been, been uh, very interesting, very informative, although not quite what I was expecting, but uh, people who are less controlling in life than me probably enjoy that. Um, <laughs> I like to know exactly what I'm getting myself in for. But the, the next one is gonna... I think that's a bookseller's prerogative. I think so. You read so much as a bookseller, you yeah. need to know what you're getting from a book if you're going to spend time on what, it. Exactly, exactly, which is why, like, I, it sounds really bad, but, like, the more I read, the shorter books I read, just because oh, yeah. I only invest time into longer books if I'm, like, I know I'm not going to stop reading this halfway through, I know I'm going to keep going with it, and in fact, I did that mm-hmm. with, a, with a book about a month ago where I picked up and uh, about... A third into it, I was like, I know what's going to happen, and I really don't want it to happen, and it's going to be so predictable and maybe slightly racist and classist, and it happened, and I just put it down, and yeah, I just knew where it was going. Um, but this 
this week I'm going to talk about a book called uh, Eat Me, A Natural and Unnatural History of Cannibalism by Bill Shoot, and this is what I'm going to read next. I'm just going to read you the, um, the blurb, essentially, uh, which is cannibalism. It's the last greatest taboo. The stuff of urban legends and ancient myths, airline crashes and Captain Cook. But while we might get a thrill at the thought of the Black Widow Spider's gruesome mating habits or the tragic fate of the 19th century Donner Party pioneers, today cannibalism belongs to history. Or, at the very least, the realm of the weird, the rare and the very far away. Doesn't it? Ooh, I no, but, read. Yeah, it it just it sounds fascinating because look like in reality most people when they think about cannibalism they kind of think about those weird serial killers and that one dude who was like, "Yeah, you can eat me." And that was very weird. Um but generally speaking, human beings are like the worst form of red meat for nutrition. So like <laughs> there is literally no point even if you were someone who had like certain tendencies there's literally no reason to eat people like you won't you will not get anything from it which is why it, it turns up in so many you know sort of extreme stories like the story behind Moby Dick there's a lot of cannibalism in that um or well yeah mostly it's sort of uh, shipwrecked um, necessity. Yeah, and actually, it used to be uh, legal to uh, eat crewmates if you were shipwrecked. And then, I think this was only about 100 years ago, uh, a group of sailors who'd been shipwrecked came back and they were like, yeah, we ate the crew. And, you know, the government were like, um, well, okay. we're going to make this illegal. And it's like, it sounds on the surface like, okay, well, you know, fair enough. Like, let's let's not advocate for cannibalism, which, you know, good on you for thinking that government. But also, when you're in that situation, like, you have to eat something. Yeah. So, like, but then to come back and have, like, done what you had to do for survival and then be penalised for it uh, is rough. Yeah. That's pretty oh. rough. I feel like it's probably one of those laws that they like made years and years ago and then went, like forgot about and then like modern thing well not modern but like things like that happen years later and they're like oh yeah this is a law we should probably change that mm -hmm. I would like to say though the cannibalism story you mentioned about the one who had permission from the guy yeah obviously horrendous story but the documentary's so fucking funny oh my god <laughs> like it's just there's a certain bit where I can't remember his name I think he's a German guy um who who was in cannibalism mm. and um there's like like quite a lot of documentaries there's their like, interviews with the family and friends like oh well we knew nothing and he was just he was a quiet guy you know <laughs> um and there's an amazing scene with his friends that apparently he used to go fishing with all the time uh and the uh interviewer is like oh well you know like obviously you wouldn't go fishing with him again if he was released from prison and they were like no we you know we'll, maybe we'll just we'll go one more time we'll, we'll go fishing with him and they're like <laughs> what and they're like yeah like you know he's still our friend and you know he's just a bad shit but we could still go fishing the interviewer's like right what if he tries to eat you and they're like we'll just throw him overboard oh my god <laughs> and i think about it all the time like it's completely overshadowed his horrendous crimes and manipulation for me yeah i only ever think about that interview oh my god <laughs> we just throw him overboard <laughs> oh it kills me it is a really yeah. interesting subject though, because there are like places that 
have like ritualistic cannibalism wherein they yeah. consume the body of the dead and it's not it's not done as like a mmm yummy dead people. It's 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 an important <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, when we talk yeah, we'll be talking about this the other week. Yeah, yeah, because it's an important part of uh tradition you know, in some tribes and I can't remember where exactly it is. Um my head's not working, it's Christmas and my brain stops at about this time of year. But um yeah, to them it's it's very important that the flesh is consumed and like all of their worldly belongings are burned e- even if it's like there's other people that live in their house because then the rest of the the sort of uh community come together and will rebuild somewhere for everyone else to live essentially um so that's and and it's like it's there isn't like pleasure taken in the act it's just it's just a part of their belief system but then, but then also um if you want to look at Christianity, there's a level of uh, symbolic cannibalism oh, in I terms understand. of, yeah. um, you know, like the wafer, the the Holy Communion, mm. the bread, uh, the wine. You know, the the idea of uh, taking Christ's body into your own is yeah. well, it sounds really sexual when I say it like that, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> off the Christians, Jasper. <laughs> I'm not trying to. No, I know. No, I know. Totally, I know what you mean. Like, yeah, there is a certain you can equate it to cannibalism if you want to go down that road. Yeah. Like it's, you know, taking in. But again, that's that's what that culture is doing. They're taking in the the dead loved one, the family mm-hmm. that you're taking mm-hmm. them into your body. So they're, I guess, I don't know enough about it, but I guess their their spirit is kept alive in that way. Well, I guess you can see the kind of like it becomes a part of you. <laughs> you know if. Like it's it's funny because we think about our ways of like dealing with the dead as really normal in terms of stuff like cremation, but like cremation really hasn't been around for that long. And when it first came out, people were like, "Heathens, she's a witch," you know. That was very much the kind of response to it. it was like, "Well, why would you want to be burnt?" And there's certain religions, and for a long time, it was believed that like you on Judgment Day you wouldn't be able to enter heaven unless your body yeah. was. Um, you know, sort of complete in a way. Um, so, uh, which is one of the reasons why it was so bad to um, have have your head cut off. Um, yeah. Because then the the body the body was not was not complete. Um, although there are there are loads of really interesting stories of saints carrying their own being beheaded and then carrying their own heads to their graves. I didn't realize how many there were. Yeah, it, there's like loads of um, loads of stories throughout history of yeah. of that taking place. And we should I, talk about that. Yeah, I, I mean, we should talk about the whole like, because it like honestly, if you thought your like friggin' GCSEs were difficult, like you you should try like getting like like achieving sainthood. Because, oh, like, especially in, like, the Catholic Church, because everything about, like, being immaculate and, like, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's very interesting, but it's kind of crazy, and they they genuinely believed that, like, these bodies were not rotting, and that, that meant that they were yeah. saintly, and... I, yeah, I, I guess, like, if, if some of the stuff that they, they said is true is true, that's incredible. Like, it really is incredible. 
Um, not to, you know, doubt anyone or anything that anyone believes in. Um, but it would be an incredible thing if... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It would be a literal miracle. It, it would, because there's stories of, like, uh, heads being... Uh, that was supposedly de decapitated, they dig up the grave, and the head is like reattached, just a thin red line. And I was reading somewhere about it, and there was a really funny line after it about like the monks trying to then pull the head off. Like, <laughs> to try and, to try and like prove it. Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm just imagining all these like guys in like robes, like, you grab his feet, I'll grab his head, and like. <laughs> Also, what does it say about my humour and like my brain that I just immediately imagine them ripping the head off and then like drop kicking it? Just playing football. No, but like like a rugby kick. <laughs> like why is that what like, the first thing I thought about? I don't know. I feel like only your psychiatrist can tell you why. Yeah, if anyone wants to volunteer for that job and doesn't charge very much, please hit me up. I feel like we can do another whole There's podcast <laughs> on like the the pressure that's that's put on like <sighs> people with men like bad mental health and also how hard it is to try and get a uh, a therapist through the NHS. That's a whole other episode, and yes. this one was supposed to be at Christmas. So yeah, and is that next th week? We didn't even mention, but this week is actually a two-parter. We should probably wrap it up now. We've yes. been talking for a little while, but um, this is part one of a two-parter, which Meg has very kindly written, um, and written very well. Might I add? Thank you. Just thank to you, thank you, thank you. just to suck up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you want? <laughs> Christmas present, so you're too late. Oh, I haven't bought you any. I'm so sorry. I know. Because <laughs> I'm the better friend, and everyone knows it. It's because you're the better person, and everyone knows it. True. Yeah. I just like. Why am I friends with you again? Uh, Sarah. Yeah, my wife. Uh, and also, even before you were with Sarah, I knew she was coming. <laughs> you had a feeling. <laughs> well, I knew you were a gay. <laughs> <laughs> From the start. We've discussed before my gaydar on point. Sorry, Every, everyone knew I was a queer before I, before I knew. I, knew. I can spot them from a mile. You were like the second person that I called. Oh my god, that's so. Oh, this is such a sad, like, a funny story. So, for context, I hate being called. I don't answer the phone if you call me. If you call me like four times, I know something bad and I'll answer. But I hate answering the phone and I don't do it. And we've never talked on the phone before. No. And we've been friends, what, like, I don't even know how long, because we were best friends, like, within a day. Like, six I months? Don't... I think we've been working together for, yeah. like, six months or something. We, like, no, no, it, it was... Them. Obviously, you have a connection, but you, like, it takes time for you to get close. Yeah. Me and you were close instantly. So, yeah. in my head, we've been friends since I was, like, five. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, we've been friends, like, six months at this point. I don't answer the phone, so you rang me. Um, and obviously something that was really, really important to you, and to this day I feel bad about it, because you, like, very sweetly, um, like, came out, and I was like, okay, cool, can we text now? Because <laughs> I didn't want to be on the phone, and also, like, I don't care. No, but it was like, and I've told you this before, it was the yeah. perfect antithesis, because the first person I called was my brother, and we had yeah. this, like, really emotional, like, let's go through my entire life, pick it apart, and be like, that was gay, that was gay, this was queer. For context, I'm not actually gay. 
But we just use it as an umbrella term. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, so I'd had this really emotional talk with him and I was on my own in London, just in this hotel room, just like having this breakdown. Oh my God, I forgot you were in London. Yeah, on my own. Yeah. Oh shit, and... I feel even worse. <laughs> And then I called Meg, I called Meg and she was like, yeah, whatever. And I was like, okay, it's fine, it's fine. I don't need to get emotional anymore. And then I just like went and listened to like Mary Lambert like on repeat for like three hours. Like if you, if you don't know, she has an amazing song called She Keeps Me Warm, which is actually beautiful. And another one about like, it's called, it's called Secrets. And it's honestly, it's just a perfect song. Um, we are rambling again, but there you I'm go. I'm such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even the first time I'd come out, though. Like, I came out to my mum as something else, like, years before when I was, like, 16. Oh, yeah, but it's the first time you came out to me and we were yeah. relatively new friends. So, yeah. like, you never know. I mean, it kills me all the people who, like, firstly, you shouldn't have to fucking come out. No. It shouldn't be assumed. Like, I, I like that like, there's a... That's a whole other round. But, like... The fact that, like, I have a lot of queer friends and the fact that some of them, a lot of them have had awful coming out experiences mm, yeah. breaks my heart and also shows the level of privilege I have as a straight person. It's disgusting that so many people that I know and love and people I don't know have had these yeah. awful, painful experiences. So I can't even imagine how awful and scary it is to come out. I can't. There's so, been... Yeah. There's been a level I love of... you as you are, but you feel like an asshole. <laughs> there, it's <laughs> fine. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's been a level of movement as well towards um, a possible changing of the language to either like coming yeah. in or coming home and making it like a oh, like oh, a holding space because coming out you almost feel like I don't know to me it has connotations of like sticking your head above like the the, the trenches yeah. and just hoping you don't get shot at and it, you know it feels kind of dangerous and very much like you're on a precipice whereas I like the idea of yeah and, and I know not everyone has that luxury of that safety and like genuinely if you're a queer listening to this you can you can you can message the podcast like yeah, yeah. talk to us we, we talk are... all the time we are totally a safe space like a hundred percent a safe space because like i i know people who've like messaged like anonymous um like queer run uh like instagram sites or chat sites and and sometimes they come out or sometimes they just want to talk about something and like it just you know it like it helps them to feel a bit more in control of it i think absolutely whereas also um if like most weeks we Remember. You're right. Yeah, no, I was just thinking um, about like how most like when we remember we do our support artist Saturday. Yes. Where we share a small yeah. business, a spooky business that we love. So if you're not following the Instagram, do uh mm-hmm. Wondering High Curios. Mm-hmm. Um because every week we're featuring some incredible independent businesses. Um but whenever either Jasper or I approach the artist we always check everyone's pronouns. Yeah. Um, before we talk to them. So if you are someone who you know, whatever pronouns you have, like, if if you're talking to us, please feel free, if we ever get it wrong, like, correct us. Mm. Correct us instantly, because pronouns mm-hmm. are really bloody important. Yeah. Um, so we always check everyone's, if, if we've, if we've got it wrong, tell us. Yeah. And we will apologise and correct it, like, we're not people who, 
like you need to tell us when we fuck up we can apologize mm-hmm. we can try mm-hmm. and rectify it yep. and we won't do it again we like, do we, we do everything a, space, a we, safe space for you yeah we do everything we can to be as aware as we can but of course mm-hmm. things might slip through the gap um Oh yeah, also uh, in terms of language, moving away from preferred pronouns to required pronouns makes me really happy. Because preferred almost gives an air of space for people to go, well I prefer not to call you that. Whereas if it's like required, so like I tend not to ask people for their preferred anymore and I tend to go like, what are your required pronouns? Like what? Okay. You know? Like, so if... See again, look, I've learned two things now for today, like right now. That's great. Yeah. Like, this is amazing. This is the conversations that we need. Come to me, my queer spooky children. Mm. Let me tell you all the things and all the things that mm. I have fucked up and learn from me. We will all grown together. Grown? We'll all grown, grown together. Well, we'll do that too. We'll have a groan and a moan t-shirt. and we'll learn a little t-shirt bit. Idea. Yes. We will all grow together. <laughs> And on that lovely, funny note, yep. I think we should probably wrap it up because this was longer yet again. It was so fun. long, but we said everything we wanted to. You got some yeah. good book reviews and yeah. So uh, do you want to say it, Meg? Yeah, I hope you all stay spooky, friends. Until next time. Wandering Eye Curios is brought to you by myself, Jasper Chanter, and my co-host, Meg James. The podcast is scripted and performed by both of us and produced by me. Music is scored and performed by Amy Marianne, with lyrics by myself. Our intro song, For Better or Worse, is sung by us. Find us on Instagram at WanderingEyeCurios and over on Twitter at WanderingEyePod. Stay spooky, friends. Until next time.